Amen. Thank you, choir and orchestra, and thank you, Dean. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. Next Sunday morning, we shall begin a period of four days of renewal and revival in this congregation. And so I want to take a slightly different approach to our worship today, and especially the ministry of the Word. And I want to talk to you about one generation of change. You see, I think that the church will operate on a totally different paradigm with a totally different mindset if we honestly believe that the people of God are never more than one generation away from change. We can see this world transformed. Spiritual revival in Winston, in Calvary Baptist Church, in Winston-Salem and in North Carolina and in the United States is possible. It is possible to see change in just one generation. So I want to I want us to emphasize that, but it cannot be done with business as usual. It will have to be done in a radically different way. And our theme for this morning is calling God's people precisely to that. 1798, the Presbyterian pastors of New England met together and said that this country was in awesome need of transformation. In fact, finally, when they concluded their meeting by vote, they voted this, that they acknowledged that the eternal God had a controversy with the United States, with this nation. And there were three changes they called for in revival and renewal in America. The first change was a change in doctrine. Pantheism, uh, deism rather, deism, even though Benjamin Franklin had died in 1790, deism was very much alive. The depersonalization of God, just making him just a large big granddaddy with some kind of benign rule over this world. And they said that the rationalists and the deists have thrown out the preaching of the gospel which had made this country what it was. It was as though when the war for the freedom of this country with great, from Great Britain had been completed, it was as though America, the colonies, could now rest on their laurels. And in that resting, new ideas and doctrines just flooded this nation and the church had been robbed of her power. And that was the second controversy they had. They said that there had to be a change, that in fact, the church, the gospel, and the body of Christ had been pushed out of its place as the social and political leader in America. And the third controversy was that those who were moving out to the frontiers of the United States, in those days, the frontier of this country was Kentucky and Tennessee, and just beyond the Appalachian, they had stretched out and were beginning to, to, people were moving out there. But those who were going to the West, and that was the West, 
had given up on the old churches and they were starting new ones and whole villages had sprung up in the frontiers of America and there was no gospel witness and no, no preaching, no churches were being started. In Princeton in 1798, which was the training bed for Presbyterian preachers, there are only two professing believers in the entire student body of Princeton. Only two. In those days, they ask you, are you a professing Christian when you went to go to college? Today, if they ask that, they'd probably have a lawsuit on their hands. But there were only two professing, acknowledging believers in all of Princeton University, which had trained the Presbyterian pastors of America to that day. Foreign visitors coming to the United States in 1798 said they found rotting, decaying church buildings in Virginia and nobody went to church. And when they visited the Carolinas, they said Sunday in the Carolinas was a day of riotous drunkenness. And those Carolinians were pagan infidels of the worst immoral sort. That's where you came from. Isn't that interesting news? I thought about that when uh, the other day the Harris Teeter manager over here told us that since the blue laws have changed, Sunday is now his second busiest shopping day of the week. It used to be Saturday and then Thursday, I believe, but now it's Saturday and then Sunday. And that's why he needs those spaces in front of his store over there so that people can do their shopping. I've been thinking about having a branch mission over there on Sunday morning at 1040 in the parking lot. Have some preaching and a choir over there as people went in and out. Give them a little exposure, maybe at least on the way to shop. Amen? <laughs> but in just 40 years from 1798 there was a complete transformation in just one generation. A complete transformation. It would be as if 17.5 million people were saved in this country in the next 40 years. Fully 7% of the population of the colonies was saved. And things have been totally turned around. On the frontier, these radical new churches called Methodists and Baptists had started arbor meetings and, and the Cane Revival of Kentucky uh, came about. And there were great camp meetings and revival meetings held under arbors. And there were great preachers, the Methodist frontier preacher like Peter Cartwright who preached the gospel went into saloons and preached he was six foot four and weighed 285 pounds and then if anybody argued with him he'd just get in a fist fight with him and whip the tar out of him and that's the way Methodists got started can you believe that sedate formal cool Methodists got started with a preacher like Peter Cartwright whipping the frontier drunks in the saloons of Kentucky I think I'd make a great movie, don't you? <laughs> I'd like to see that one. 
and Baptists were having revivals. There was the Sandy Creek revival and it was, the, the churches were proliferating and these new churches in the frontier began to spread like wildfire because by, seven, by 1838, in just one generation, America had seen a tremendous transformation. And, and the, the, one of the key things about that is that uh, a revival preacher by the name of Charles Finney came on the scene in 1830. And uh, Charles Finney was a, uh, his revival meetings were not marked by emotional excesses as the frontier revivals were. He had a revival in Rochester, New York, western New York State, that lasted a full year. And in that city alone, in that city, during that year of revival, there were something like 8,000 converts who came to Jesus Christ. Now, revival is not pr primarily for evangelism, but revival will always result in evangelism. Meanwhile, in Kentucky, the revival fires were fanned in Kentucky, Tennessee, and uh, all of the new frontier. One man was on his way to a camp meeting, and he ran into a bar, a bear. <laughs> and he had the bear cornered. Now, if you hear those bells, that's a fire drill. You don't have to empty out this morning. That's a fire drill. In case of a fire, your children are all cared for. They will be escorted out. You don't need to panic and run over there to look for your children or grandchildren. They will be cared for and will go outside. And if we have a fire, some reputable person will come in and tell me, and I will tell you, and we will get you out this exit, this exit, that exit and that exit, and you will leave orderly and not like a Kentucky revival meeting. All right? <laughs> On his way to a camp meeting, this man was faced by a bear, and he had carried his axe in order to make kindling for his family while they were in the camp meeting. And he swung the axe at the bear, and the bear knocked the axe from his hand and bit his arm and got hold of his arm. And so the bear had his nose right in the man's face and he bit the bear's nose and took his thumb and gouged out the bear's eye. And the bear was screaming so that somebody had to help the bear away from the man. And he said, that's what we're going to do to the devil in these here parts. <laughs> Reminded me of what Billy Sunday said. He said, I'm going to fight the devil with every ounce of energy I have. When I run out of energy, I'll beat on him with my fists, and I can't beat on him with my fists. I'm going to bite him, and when I can't bite him and all my teeth are gone, I'm going to gum him to death. <laughs> Jeremiah preached for 40 years, one generation. Jeremiah was God's spokesman. Jeremiah called the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, to repentance. Jeremiah gave them God's message. Jeremiah warned them of God's judgment. Jeremiah did everything God asked him to do, but the people would not turn from their sin. Revival is possible in one generation, but the difference between Jeremiah's age and the age of 1798, which was called the Second Great Awakening, there have been three great revivals in America. The first in the 1740s, the second the one to which I've referred, and the third Great Awakening came in 1858 through D.L. Moody's time. 
But Jeremiah, who came from Anathoth, was threatened by his own townspeople. He was tried for his life by the priests in Jerusalem. He was put in stocks. He was forced to flee from King Jehoiakim. He was publicly humiliated by the false prophet Hananiah and finally thrown into a cistern. But I want you to note the characteristics of Jeremiah's message because they're instructive for us if we would like to see genuine renewal and revival in America today. In Jeremiah chapter 7, you see the first element of his prophet's message to the people. And this message deals with the stubbornness of the people in chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them. Now watch this. Here are the central verses of the book of Jeremiah. Obey my voice, verse 23, and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but continued to walk in the counsels and in the imagination of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. It is always the role of the prophetic preacher. It is always the role of the prophetic church to call a people who are going backwards to start going forwards. And whether they go forward or backward is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to give them God's message. And that is still the responsibility of the church in this day. Notice the stubbornness of the people. If you will obey, I will be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in the ways I have commanded you. I shall prosper you. It will be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in the counsels and the imagination of their evil heart. Ladies and gentlemen, the first contribution that you and I as individuals can make to revival in America and revival in this church and revival among Baptists and revival in North Carolina is we must make sure we're walking forward and not backward, that we're obeying and not countering God, that we are not challenging him, but responding to his message. Everything in this state hinges on what God's people in this state do. We cannot just sit back and decry the moral decline and, and uh, complain about the change in morals and ethics. Revival doesn't depend upon our political action, though that's fine. We ought to be prophetically involved. Revival depends upon our personal action, whether we meet the conditions of God. And when we do, as God's people go, in any situation, so goes revival in that area, in that state, in that country. And it is possible, but not by business as usual, that we can have revival in our time. But when will we learn to give up our stubbornness? We talk about revival, but we wouldn't know it if we saw it, many of us.
We have this idea out here that if there's revival, this and this and this will happen. Usually it's an emotional idea. But when revival happens, it starts with God's people and then spreads to the rest of the community. There's always an impact on the, the people around whom the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ lives. I heard about a travel agency that advertised a cruise for $100. And the man walked in and said, I want one of those $100 cruises. And the travel agent got up from his desk, took a baseball bat, hit the man up the side of the head, knocked him out, carried him down to the river, dumped him in the river. The man was floating down the river. A little later, another man came into the travel agency and said, I'd like uh, one of those $100 cruises. Travel agent got up, got his bat, hit the man up the side of the head, knocked him out, carried him down to the river, dumped him in the river. And they were floating down the river and the second man, second man ran into the first one as they were floating down the river together. First man said, do they serve meals on this cruise? And the second one said, they didn't last year. I think the church is a lot like those $100 cruise men. I mean, when will we learn? You, you cannot keep resisting the Spirit of God. And revival, why, why will we depend? Why, why, why the church? I don't understand this about us Christians. Why will we depend upon unregenerate men and women in government, unregenerate men and women in business to bring about revival? And why are you surprised that unregenerate leaders have no concern for spiritual things? Does that surprise you? Where have you been? On a $100 cruise? You see, revival depends upon us. And it depends upon whether my, in my stubbornness I refuse to renounce my sin, I refuse to reconcile, I refuse to repent. A renunciation, reconciliation, and repentance are always the steps of revival. We cannot have revival with business as usual. But when we get down to Jeremiah's business and God's business, there will be revival in one generation. This nation could be absolutely transformed in one generation if we meant business for God. And it would be felt in the political and the educational and the commercial and the economic realm. Secondly, Jeremiah now points out the sting of their sin, the stubbornness of the people. Go to Jeremiah chapter 13. You will see the sting. What happened as a result in Jeremiah 13? If you begin reading in verse 8, you will see the word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who walk in the imagination of their heart and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be just like this sash, which is profitable for nothing. And Jeremiah was always using uh, word pictures and he was always using object lessons. You think sometimes it's Mickey Mouse when I bring a waffle ball in here and use it for an object lesson. But I want to tell you, Jeremiah always did. said, see this, Sash? Verse 12. Therefore you shall speak to them this word, says the Lord God of Israel. Every bottle shall be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? 
See, the people were so assured of their prosperity. They said, oh, yes, we have much. Verse 13. And you, Jeremiah, shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness, and I will dash them or smash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. Now watch. As a result of your sin and your stubbornness, God said to Jeremiah, I will destroy your capacity to reason. And so in verse 13, I will fill the inhabitants of this land, the kings, the priests, the prophets, the leaders, all the inhabitants with drunkenness. Now, a sure sign of the need of revival is when we lose our capacity for reasonable reasoning. Let me show you what I mean by that. Two weeks ago in Greensboro, a teacher by the name of Marion McDonald in uh, the Mendenhall Middle School in Greensboro invites the Teen Challenge to come and talk to her class about, about uh, drug rehabilitation. She said, now you can't dwell on the gospel. You cannot dwell on it. Now, the director of the Greater Piedmont Teen Challenge, Dennis, Dennis Kaiseth, took with him four completely rehabilitated drug addicts. And as they told their story, they casually mentioned that God had helped them overcome their drugs. And they left some pamphlets for the students. And one was the Christian 12 Steps. And the principal of the school called the teacher in. This happened on March 13th. This year, this is not New York. This is Greensboro, North Carolina. And the principal called her in and uh, forced her, the, the school administration forced her to take immediate retirement because there had been a mention of God in the classroom. The principal then wrote a letter of apology to all the parents. Can you imagine writing a letter of apology for mentioning that God had helped somebody overcome drug addiction? The poor woman lost, if she could have stayed to the end of the year, she would have had a much better retirement. And to the credit of the Greensboro News and Record, they wrote a magnificent editorial condemning the school system for the unreasonable action they had taken. And listen to this. Equally worrisome is the grotesquely distorted perception of church-state relations this episode conveys. The relationship, as we said, is complex, but nothing in the Constitution and nothing in the words of the Supreme Court bars a school speaker from expressing a religious idea. Indeed, what could be any more offensive than the stunning insensitivity of a school principal apologizing for someone else's religious expression? Parents who think such an apology is appropriate need to take another look at what country they live in. They are seriously, now here's the word, confused. My Constitution and your Constitution guarantees that Congress shall make no law respecting any religion or restricting the free exercise thereof. Period. Amen. 
But when the devil has his way in a country, our reasoning capacity is so distorted that what is politically correct becomes the guide by which we make ridiculous decisions like this. I mean, we've got enough drug problem. My brother, if they want to, if somebody wants to come in and give a testimony as to the power of the Koran to help them, uh, I'll, I'll, that's fine too. <laughs> but I think this illustrates what is happening in public life in America. It's become wrong to even mention God. Imagine, you could lose your job in a public school just for mentioning just for having teen challenge in to say this is the way I overcame my addiction and that is wrong what in the world has happened to this country we could say just as they said in 1798 that it's very much like that time that the church has been shoved aside from its place of leadership. There is an anti-religious sentiment loose in this world that is unreasoning. Jeremiah said that's what's going to happen. That is what's going to happen. That is, what is, that is a sign of judgment on the land. And then he said, verse 14, there will be not only the destruction of reason, but the destruction of the family. I will smash fathers against sons and sons against fathers. That is an awesome declaration of judgment. That is a sign of the judgment of God upon a land, the need for revival. There will be enmity as never before seen in the family and the destruction of family relationships. Need we say any more? Jeremiah talks about the result, the sting, the effect of Judah's sin. The third element he takes up is the strategy of God's remnant in chapter 15. What shall we do about it? Well, it's not up to the world to do something about God's, uh, God's truth. It's up to us, the body of Christ. So what shall we do? Now I want you to turn to Jeremiah 15. And look at verse 19. If you return, the Lord says to Judah, if you return, then I will bring you back. You shall stand before me if you take out the precious from the vial. Now look at that. You shall be as my mouth. Let them return to you, but you must not return to them. You influence them, the unrepentant, but you must not let them influence you. It's probably a better translation of the Hebrew. And I will make you to this people a fortified bronze wall. And they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. I will deliver you from the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem you from the grip of the terrible. Now, here's the strategy of God's remnant. First, the first thing is this. He said, separate the precious from the vile. Now, in the first place, revival will come when the remnant of God's people, it can come in a high school, it can come in a grade school, it can come in a college, it can come in a city, in a state. When God's people, the precious, dare to separate themselves from the vile and recognize that the responsibility for revival is that of the remnant. Now, the principle of the remnant is a valid New Testament principle that God deals with the whole on the basis of a few. Do you understand? The principle of the remnant is God deals with the whole on the basis of the few. Je uh, Genesis chapter 18. Abraham, you remember? 
when he hears the angel says, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham begged with God, can, will you save the, the, the cities if you can find 50 righteous, 45, 40, 35, 30, 20, and finally got down to 10. And the principle of the remnant is that God acts for the good of the whole when a handful, the precious from the vile, take up God's cause. There it is in verse 19. I will bring you back if you take out the precious from the vile. Identify the remnant and get the remnant addressing the problem of the need for revival. Get them in prayer. Get them on their knees. Get them to, to uh, come back to personal holiness themselves. That's the first step. The second step is you shall be my spokesman then. First, identify the remnant. Secondly, you shall be, underline that phrase, you shall be as my mouth. That's our job. You know, the world intimidates us by telling us we are not to force our beliefs on anyone else. But boy, we got people forcing their beliefs on us every day. And we Christians have just as much right in the public marketplace of ideas and truth as anyone else to let our convictions be known. We are to be as God's mouth. We are to be as God's spokesman. High school students, you are to be God's spokesman where he's planted you. You are to be God's spokesman in the office. College students, you are to be as God's mouth. There will not be revival until the church dares to speak. The, first, identify the remnant, and then the church dares to speak for God as God's mouth addressing the, the problem of the lack of knowledge and the lack of truth in society, as the prophet Hosea said. The third thing that we must do, the strategy of the remnant, must be the bronze wall strategy. Do you see that? Verse 20, I will make you to this nation, this people, a fortified bronze wall. And they will fight against you. Do you ever feel you're in a sub-subculture? How many of you have ever felt that the world is just overwhelming and you're in a sub-subculture? The rest of the world doesn't think the way you think. So he says, they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you to save you and deliver you, says the Lord. Go on and do what I told you to do. Be my mouth, identify the remnant, and I promise you I will be with you. But I love this picture. Uh, I am to be as a bronze wall. Isn't that neat? You are, I hereby appoint you to the order of the bronze wall. You are a bronze wall to the world. They cannot prevail against you. You are to influence them, but don't let them influence you because it is the nature of human nature to go down. It's far easier to sin than it is to do right. Amen? Has anybody ever found that out here? <laughs> that is the nature of human nature because of man's original depravity and sin. But God calls us to be a bronze wall. There you have it. That's your strategy. Identify the remnant. That's the true church. Be a spokesman, be God's mouth, and finally be as a bronze wall. Watch your influence. And the fourth and last thing is in Jeremiah 18. And then comes the strength of God's promise. That's what Jeremiah deals with. Chapter 18, he uses the figure of the potter, verse 2. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. I went to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel, have you ever been down to Jugtown? I love to go down there. I've been down there to Cole's Pottery. 
And Nell Cole, with her gnarled old hands, is at that wheel, watching the, have you, it's fascinating to me to watch that, and then she can shape that just the way she wants it, the potter. But if there's a flaw in it, she can pick it up and plop it down into one big amorphous glob, boom, plop. I love the sound of that when it falls, plop. And start all over again, and God says, that's what I am. Verse 4, the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel. Revival is God remaking this area, a state, a community, a family, a nation, all over again. Verse 6, the word of the Lord said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I have thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. God said, I will relent, or you can relent. You just make up your mind. You want to relent from your stubbornness? Do you want to relent from your, your pride? If so, then I will relent from the judgment I have determined to bring down upon you. Folks, I don't mean to give the church of Winston-Salem, made up of Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Moravians, all saved people. I don't mean to give us a messianic complex. But let's be honest about this. We are the body of Christ. We are God's spokesman. We are God's bronze wall. If we don't speak, who will? Revival does not hinge upon unregenerate governmental leaders bringing about a revival. You can't dictate godliness. But revival depends upon the people of God meeting revival conditions and then you will see change in public schools so that no longer do you lose your job because you bring in four young men from Teen Challenge to say, we found Jesus and our drug addiction is gone. I'd say hallelujah. I'll tell you the problem is so bad, why would anybody be opposed to that? And I'm not a pragmatician. I believe we are. I, I believe in separation of church and state. I've had everybody and his brother try to get me involved in things with government money. And I've said, no, 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 no. But I will equally defend the right to the free exercise of religion to stand up and speak for it. And in fact, that's what God told us to do. Identify the remnant, be as my mouth, and be a bronze wall. That's what he said we are to do. And God said, when I do that, then I'll break the judgment from the land. I'll stop, I'll relent, I'll pull it back, and I'll bless you all over again. Now, I know this is not the normal message you hear in this church on Sunday, but it is a, a message that is deep, deep, deep in my heart. We've had three great awakenings since 1740, 1798 to 1838, 1858, probably 1896 or so when Moody died. Do you know something? Most everybody in this building this morning was born in the 20th century, and we've seen great evangelistic campaigns in the Billy Graham Crusades. 
But you know, there's not one notable church historian that will admit that we've had a revival in the United States in this century, anything like in the previous two centuries. And it happened on our watch, my watch, your watch. It happened while you and I were leaders in the body of Christ. And we, for the most part, sat around and complained about the state of the world. And in this bad, we got to do something about this. And I want to tell you, folks, the answer lies in the people of God identifying the remnant, being God's spokesman, and being a bronze wall to the world. And that's why this morning I want to call this church. I want to ask you to turn to seek God's face for just 50 serious days. To seek the face and the mind and the will of the Father. My heart cries out, wouldn't it be refreshing to see the Spirit of God breathe across this land as he did in that other generation? Wouldn't it be refreshing to see the Spirit of God reviving churches, reviving schools? Wouldn't it be refreshing to see the hand of the Lord come down and open the windows of heaven and let his blessing pour out? Wouldn't it be refreshing? We've experienced a measure of revival in this church. God has been so good to us. I would to God that there were 30 Calvary Baptist churches in Winston-Salem. I mean that with all my heart. I would to God there were 30 congregations that averaged in attendance what we, what we average. You say, wouldn't you be jealous? No, I wouldn't be jealous. I'd be rejoicing. I would be rejoicing. All the way to glory, I would rejoice. And I want to see that. I want to see our schools changed, our government changed. I want to see, I want to see the rights of Americans to, to say and do and stand up for what they believe. I want to see that happen, but God has to do it. And he will do it when we meet the conditions of revival. And there are three. There are three. Our work is, our work is to identify the remnant. Our work is to be God's spokesman and to be a bronze wall. But the conditions are repentance, renunciation, reconciliation. And when we've taken those personal steps, you can expect God's Spirit to fall all over this place. Amen and amen. Would you stand with me in prayer? Holy Father, we pray that you will speak to the people you call Calvary Baptist Church and have your way in us. Speak to us right now and start putting in our hearts a desire for renewal and revival. In Jesus' name, amen.